Chapter Seventeen, Part Six of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume Two, by John Bagnell Burry. Chapter Seventeen, Part Six. Section Six Battle of Issus. The great king had already crossed the Euphrates at the head of a vast host. He had let the invader subjugate Asia Minor, but he now came in person to bar his further progress. Alexander did not hurry to the encounter, and his delay, as we shall see, turned to his profit in an unexpected manner. Sending forward Parmenio with part of the army to secure the passes from Cilicia into Syria, Alexander himself turned to subdue western Cilicia. He first visited Anchialus noted for the statue of the Assyrian king Sardanapalus, and the famous inscription, Sardanapalus founded Anchialus and Tarsus on the same day. But thou, O stranger, eat, drink, and sport, all else is worthless. Having seen this comment on his own ambitious dreams, Alexander went on to Soli, the city of Solicisms, an ultimate Greek outpost where men had almost forgotten Greek institutions and Greek speech. From here he made an excursion against the Cilician hill folks, and reduced the whole district in seven days. Then he returned eastward and advanced to Issus, under Mount Amanus. Darius was on the other side of the mountains, in the plain of Sokoi, on ground which was highly favorable for deploying his host. There were two roads from Issus into Syria. One led directly over difficult mountain passes, while the other wound along the coast to Miriandros, and then crossed Mount Amanus. The second road, along which we formerly accompanied Cyrus and Xenophon, was now chosen by Alexander. Leaving his sick at Issus, he marched forward to Miriandros, but was detained there by a violent storm of rain, for it was already the beginning of winter. The great king, informed by Arsimes of the rapid approach of Alexander, expected every day to see him descending from the mountains, and when he came not, owing to the delays in Cilicia, it was thought that he held back through fear, and did not venture to desert the coast. Accordingly, Darius and his nobles decided to seek Alexander. The Persian army crossed the northern passes of Amanus, and reached Issus, where they tortured and put to death the sick who had been left behind. Alexander cannot be blamed for this disaster, for he could not foresee that his enemies would commit such an incredible military error as to abandon the open plain, in which their numerical superiority would tell, for a confined place, where the movements of a multitude would be cramped. To Alexander, the tidings that Darius was at Issus was too good to be true, and he set a boat to reconnoiter. When he was assured that the enemy had thus played into his hands, he marched back from Meriandros through the sea gates into the little plain of Issus. The plain of Issus is cut in two by the stream of the Pinaris, which was to play the same part in the coming battle as the Granicus had played in the battle of Adrastia. Here, as in that first skirmish, it fell to Alexander to attack the Persians, who had themselves no plan of attack. Here, as there, the Persians were defended by the natural entrenchment of a steep-banked river. The Macedonian columns defiled into the plain at dawn, and when Darius learned that they were approaching, he threw across the river fifty thousand cavalry and light troops to cover the rest of the army, while it arrayed itself for battle. As his host was numbered by tens of thousands, and the plain was only three miles broad, it is clear that most of his troops were forced to remain behind as reserves. The whole front was composed of hoplites, 
thirty thousand Greek mercenaries, and the regiments of Orientals called Cardaces. The left wing touched the lower slopes of the mountains and curved round, following the line of the hill, so as to face the flank of the enemy's right wing. When the array was formed, the cavalry was recalled to the north of the river and posted on the right wing, near the sea, where the ground was best adapted for cavalry movements. Alexander advanced, his army drawn up on the usual plan, the phalanx in the center, the hypastus on the right. At first he placed the Thessalian, as well as the Macedonian cavalry, on the right wing, in order to strengthen his own cavalry attack. But when he saw that all the Persian cavalry was concentrated on the seaside, he was obliged to transfer the Thessalians to their usual position on his own left. In order to meet the danger which threatened the flank and rear of his right wing from the Persian forces on the slope of the mountain, he placed a column of light troops on the extreme right to form a second front. As in the engagements on the Granicus, the attack was to be made by the heavy cavalry on the left center of the enemy's line. But it was a far more serious and formidable venture. Those who have read the story of the Battle of Cunaxa might despise an Asiatic multitude, but Darius had 30,000 Greek mercenaries who knew how to stand and to fight. And if Alexander was defeated, his retreat was cut off. The Persian left did not sustain Alexander's onset at the head of his cavalry. The phalanx followed more slowly, and in crossing the stream and climbing the steep bank, the line became dislocated, especially at one spot, and the Greek hoplites pressed them hard on the river bank. If the phalanx had been driven back, Alexander's victorious right wing would have been exposed on the flank and the battle lost. But the phalangites stood their ground obstinately until the hypastus were free to come to their help by taking their adversaries in the flank. Meanwhile, Alexander's attack had been directed upon the spot where the great king himself stood in his war chariot, surrounded by a guard of Persian nobles. There was a furious melee in which Alexander was wounded in his leg. Then Darius turned his chariot and fled, and this was the signal for a universal flight on the left. On the seaside, the Persian cavalry crossed the river and carried all before them, but in the midst of their success, the cry that the king was fleeing made them waver, and they were soon riding wildly back, pursued by the Thessalians. The whole Persian host was now rushing northward to the passes of Amanus, and thousands fell beneath the swords of their pursuers. Darius did not tarry. He forgot even his mother and his wife, who were in the camp at Issus. And when he reached the mountain, he left his chariot, his shield, and his royal cloak behind him, and mounting a swift mare, rode for dear life. Having pursued the great king till nightfall, and found his relics by the wayside, Alexander returned to the Persian camp. He supped in the tent of Darius, and there fell upon his ears a noise and the wailing of women from a tent hard by. He asked who the women were, and why they were lodged so near, and learned that it was the wife and mother and the children of the fugitive king. They had been told that Alexander had returned with the shield and cloak of Darius, and supposing that their lord was dead, had broken into lamentation. Alexander sent one of his companions to comfort them with the assurance that Darius lived, and that they would receive, while they were in Alexander's power, all the respect and consideration due to royal ladies for Alexander had no personal enmity against Darius. No act of Alexander, perhaps, astonished his contemporaries more than this generous treatment of the family of his royal rival. His ideal hero, Achilles, would not have resisted the charm of the captive queen, Statira, the most beautiful of women. But the charms of love had no temptation for Alexander, and his behavior to the captives was prompted not only by his natively humane and generous feelings, 
but by the instinct and policy of a royal invader to display respect for royalty as such. Thus was the Persian host, which had come to trample down Alexander and his little army, annihilated on the plain of Issus. A city, which still retains the name of Alexander, was built in commemoration of the battle, at the northern end of the sea-gates. The road was now open into Syria. This was the immediate military result of the battle of Issus. Just as the small fight on the Granicus had cleared the way for the acquisition of Asia Minor, so the fight on the Pinaris cleared the way for the conquest of Syria and Egypt. The rest of the work would consist in tedious sieges, but the victory of Issus had, beyond its immediate result, immense importance through the prestige which it conferred on the victor. He had defeated an army ten times as great as his own, led by the great king in person, whom he had driven back over the mountains in ignominious flight. He had captured the mother of the great king, and his wife, and his children. Darius himself unbent his haughty Persian pride, when he had reached safety beyond the Euphrates, so far as to make the first overtures to the conqueror. He wrote a letter, in which he complained that Alexander was an unprovoked aggressor, begged that he would send back the royal captives, and professed willingness to conclude a treaty of friendship and alliance. It was much for a Persian king to bring himself to write this, but such a condescending appeal required a stern reply. We are fortunate enough to possess the text of Alexander's answer, which seems to have been published as a sort of manifesto to Europe as well as Asia. It was to this effect. Your ancestors invaded Macedonia and the rest of Greece, and without provocation inflicted wrongs upon us. I was appointed leader of the Greeks, and crossed over into Asia for the purpose of avenging those wrongs, for ye were the first aggressors. In the next place ye assisted the people of Perinthus, who were offenders against my father, and Ochus sent a force into Thrace, which was part of our empire. Further, the conspirators who slew my father were suborned by you, as ye yourselves boasted in your letters. Thou, with the help of Bagoas, didst murder Arases, son of Ochus, and seize the throne unjustly and contrary to the law of the Persians, and then thou didst write improper letters regarding me to the Greeks, to incite them to war against me, and didst send to the Lacedaemonians and others of the Greeks for the same purpose, sums of money, whereof none of the other cities partook, but only the Lacedaemonians and thine emissaries corrupted my friends, and tried to dissolve the peace which I had brought about in Greece. Wherefore I marched against thee, who wert thus the aggressor in the quarrel. I have overcome in battle, first thy generals and satraps, and now thyself and thine host, and possess thy land through the grace of the gods. Those who fought on thy side, and were not slain, but took refuge with me, are under my protection, and are glad to be with me, and will fight with me henceforward. I am lord of all Asia, and therefore do thou come to me. If thou art afraid of being evilly entreated, send some of thy friends to receive sufficient guarantees. Thou hast only to come to me, to ask and receive thy mother, and wife, and children, and whatever else thou mayest desire. And for the future, whenever thou sendest, send to me as the great king of Asia, and do not write to me as an equal, but tell me whatever they might need, as to one who is lord of all that is thine. Otherwise I will deal with thee as an offender. But if thou disputest the kingdom, then wait and fight for it again, and do not flee, for I will march against thee wherever thou mayest be. The treasures, 
which Darius had brought with him into Syria, had been sent for safety to Damascus when he crossed the passes of Amanus. Accordingly, Alexander sent Parmenio to take possession of them. Parmenio found at Damascus some Greek envoys who had arrived at the camp of Darius a short time before the battle, one Spartan, one Athenian, and two Thebans. Alexander detained the Spartan as a prisoner, kept the Athenian as a friend, and let the Thebans go free. His clemency to the Thebans was due to a certain compunction, which he always felt for the hard measures dealt out to their city, while a personal motive dictated his favor to the Athenian, Iphicrates, son of the great general of the same name, whose memory was highly esteemed in Macedonia. The incident showed that Greece, which had openly chosen Alexander for her leader, was secretly intriguing with Persia. When it was known that Darius was crossing the Euphrates, men were hoping and praying at Athens that the Macedonians would be trodden under by the Persian host. A hundred fast-sailing Persian ships appeared at Siphnos, and Agis, the Spartan king, visited the commanders, asking for money and galleys to carry out a project of rebellion against Macedonia. At Athens, Hipparides agitated for open war, but Demosthenes prudently counseled his fellow citizens to wait until the expected catastrophe of Alexander had become an accomplished fact. Then the news came that the leader of the Greeks had won a brilliant victory, and Greece had to cloak her disappointment. The Persian squadron hurried back to save what could be saved on the Asiatic coast, and only thirty talents and ten vessels could be spared to Agis, who used them to secure the island of Crete. End of chapter 17, part 6